0: snack to share tonight. uh, And we'll love on her for just a little bit. If you haven't already found Judges chapter 10, just open a songbook anywhere you feel like and smile at me, okay? Uh, We're going to backtrack just a little bit because the teenagers weren't in here. So we're going to backtrack a little bit. And last week we had Brother Young in here. How many of you enjoyed him by the way? He's got like some of the greatest stories. They seem completely nonsense. And then he finishes and adds like one more sentence and you're like, Oh, I see what you did there. I love that. How many of you ever heard David Gibbs, the lawyer, speak? He will rattle off these stories. Sometimes they're like 30 minutes long, and then he ends it and gives you a Bible verse, and you're like, I'm a horrible person. I don't know how he does that. It's like, if I ever go to jail, I'm calling you, dude. Um, I I don't know what it'll do, but I'm going to try. Judges chapter 10, go to verse uh, 17. Again, we're going to backtrack a little bit. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this, but. For the teenagers' sake and for some of ours, since it's been a couple weeks, we we need to catch back up. Judges chapter 10, look at verse 17. Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people and princes of Gilead said one to another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So we've got an enemy Okay, that's kind of been the cycle that's gone on repeatedly here. With the children of Israel, we got an enemy that's encamped here, and it's right across the river. Israel's encamped here, and basically the statement is in verse 18, whoever's willing to start this fight on our behalf will make you in charge. So whoever is that's the first foolhardy person to run out there into battle and take lead, because that's how battles worked. Whoever ran out first, that was usually the guy in charge, will make you in charge of everything. So they're asking the question, what man is he? Who is this? Who's going to be? You realize we, we're familiar with the Bible account of David and Goliath. okay? How, does anybody remember how long the Israelites have been encamped there against the Philistines? It's like 40 days. And over and over and over again, Goliath would get up and send somebody out to fight me. And they just stood there and stared. Why? Because they're waiting for that one person to go out and lead the battle. That was a really common tactic weird tactic okay we're used to modern warfare as it is today where it's all done from fairly far away or from really tactical positions this era of war wasn't quite as bad as the british in the revolutionary war if you've ever gone back and paid attention to there's a reason they lost dumbest fighting style in the world let's all march straight ahead and shoot and if you die you just step over that guy's dead body and take his spot no wonder the. and they're in bright red if they, all they needed was the target logo, like right here in the middle, and it would have just made things even easier for us. That's kind of how ancient warfare was, except they didn't have guns. This is all going to be hand-to-hand combat anyways. So one guy'd run out and everybody would follow suit in this kind of triangular pattern as everybody ran out and the other team would start running out. And it just became this huge mess of mud and flesh and blood and steel and just this gory mess. So the Israelites are waiting. So who's going to do this? Who's going to start this? Could you imagine? You got the entire army of Israel. Who's going to start this? Mm -mm, Not me. In fact, if it would, if I'd been there, I'd been like the guy like slowly sneaking back until nobody can see me anymore. Last uh, competition that dad and I went to with weightlifting, they wanted to have a big group picture of everybody. Well, dad and I aren't exactly, excuse me, (coughs) large people. I don't know if you know that. Um, we're a little on the um, diminutive side of height. We snuck in the back of that picture. You can't see us. It's great. It's my dad's favorite picture of himself because you can see like part of his fake leg and that's it. Okay? I would be that guy if this is battle's about to take place. Like, I'm just going to sneak back here and hope nobody notices. In fact, if nobody's paying attention, I might just go home. Um, but they're waiting. So go into Judges chapter 11. And this the beginning verses here, the first couple verses kind of backtracks a little bit, giving us a little bit of backstory. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. And we've paused here before, and I don't want to take a lot of time. But you do realize this is a title that God is giving him? This isn't him giving himself a title, eh? LeBron James, possibly gonna go down in history and likely as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. What is LeBron James' nickname? The King. Who gave LeBron James the nickname, The King? LeBron James. That's obnoxious. That drives me nuts. (laughs) Michael Jordan's considered the greatest of all time. Do you know who called him that? Everyone else. So you new kids, it's still Jordan. Just throwing that out there, okay? Mm. That has nothing to do with anything. I just thought I'd throw that out there. But for, for the sake of illustration though, Jephthah didn't give himself this nickname. God did. God gave him a nickname that you do realize here, he gave him a moniker, something, a specific title, mighty man of valor that has now stood the test of nearly 3,900 years of human history. This was a special dude, okay? And he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead, that's his dad, begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up. And they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. So Jephthah's born. Does he have any choice in who his parents are? No, just like the rest of us. Whether we like them or not, whether we agree with everything they do or not, they're still our parents because we don't have a choice in that fact. But his brothers... Technically, his half-brothers, they know who his mom is. They don't like her, so they kick him out of the family. You're not going to inherit anything part of our family. Jump down to verse 4. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. So Jephthah left. The Bible tells us that in verse 3. He left and he dwelt in the land of Top. This is actually a whopping, we talked about this about two weeks ago, only about 15 miles away. The sad part is 15 miles away was really, really far You realize 15 miles during that era was about a two-day walk. That's a long enough journey that he would actually have zero contact with his family. That's kind of crazy to us. We'll drive 15 miles just to get gas for like four cents cheaper, okay? Because we're like saving money even though the gas there and back has basically negated the guy down the street. We do that. Fifteen miles is nothing to us unless you're on the Merritt Parkway, and that's either the fastest or the slowest drive you've ever taken in your life. But 15 miles in this era, he's separated by a lifetime in the process of time. Does anybody know how long that is? No, me neither. I have no clue how long this was. It came to pass in the process of time. Verse four kind of catches us back up to where we were at the end of chapter 10. Children of Ammon made war against Israel. So we're kind of back up. So like I said, the first three verses are kind of giving us a little bit of backstory. Verse four catches us back up. And it was so when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. Why did they fetch him? Because of what's in verse three, and I didn't read it on purpose, says they were gathered vain men. Now, again, this is not men who stared at themselves in the mirror. This is not Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, Okay. Vain men meant men that were worth nothing. They were likely poor. Bunch of poor men and went out with him. The way it's actually described by a lot of Bible historians and commentators is they kind of had a Robin Hood style concept going on. They went out and robbed the bad guys, if you will, the children of Ammon and some of these others to take care of themselves and take care of the people around them, okay? So kind of robbed the rich, but they were the poor, if that makes any sense. Not necessarily the greatest thing to do, but they are going after the enemies of God, not after God's people. So we got to give them at least an ounce of credit here, but that's kind of the idea. And they go after Jephthah. Hey, we need you to come help us. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. One of the reasons they went after Jephthah is look at the title that God gave him in verse one, a mighty man of valor. How was that proven? By verse three, went out with him. He had a track record of winning victories right? You're going to, if you need to go into some kind of a battle, you're not going to pick the guy that's never done this before. Okay. If I know I'm going to get in a fight and I know it's planned, I'm going to be getting in a fight with somebody. I'm not picking Ronnie Bernardo. I love Ronnie, but Ronnie's like four foot, nothing 13 year old punk. He's going to die first. Maybe I will pick Ronnie. I'm just kidding, Ronnie. I'm just kidding. No, you know who I'm going to pick? I'm going to pick the guy that was a Navy SEAL. That's what the children of Israel are doing right here. They need help, so they're picking the guy with the track record. The other cool part is that I mentioned, he's got a band of, the Bible calls them vain men. He comes with a built-in army. Who better to call when you're going to war than the guy with a built-in army? That's kind of a win-win right there. And Jephthah's response was, and and I love this, it's in verse seven, and Jephthah said unto the elders of Israel, did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? You guys hated me, but now you need me when it's at its worst. By the way, that happens because people are people. And I don't know if you know this, even though everybody in this room is people, people are stupid. Do, Do you know that? Okay, so there are moments where, People may not like you for whatever reason. It may be your personality, maybe a bad action or a poor choice, a poor decision. But when they need you, you're the person that they come to. I would like to be that person that's reliable enough, whether people love me or hate me, when they need me, I can be there for them. Jephthah was that person. That goes back to a mighty man of valor. Valor just doesn't mean bravery. Valor gives the idea of bravery... But consistency. I want to have that level of consistency. So he comes in. Didn't you hate me? You kicked me out of my father's house, but now you need me. So look at verse 8. And the elders of Israel said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head. So we're actually, instead of just kicking you out, if you will help us, we're going to put you in charge of our entire area. For Jephthah's sake, you got to think about this for a split second. He is in a very weird position. He's got messengers coming to him from his hometown, his family members, asking, We not only need you to come back, but we want you to be in charge, even though we're the ones that kicked you out and hated you. That's a weird position to be in. For, for, for his sake, there's got to be a little bit of a conflict, because again, Mighty Man of Valor gives us some indication as to his character. But at the very same time, there's gotta be a level of vanity. We are human. I don't know if you know that, right? Humans make mistakes. Humans fail, we're frail, we're flesh. That, huh, huh, shoulders might've gone back a little bit. head snapped up a little bit. So you want me now. So now you need me. You do realize the human part of him, he could have just said, no, good luck. When you die, I want your house. He could have done that. That's what they did to him. They kicked him out. No inheritance means he's left with nothing, nothing, zero. Even if he'd been the youngest in the family and gotten an inheritance, he would have gotten something. They kicked him out and gave him nothing. Now they want him. How many of us would have probably just been like, no, take care of yourselves. I'm done. You didn't want me. I'm done with you people. He was better than us because he was a man of valor. And he responds, look at verse nine. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon. That phrasing is very important. If you bring me home again. He didn't feel like Tob was home. He never did. And he wanted to be home. The Lord deliver them before us. Shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us. If we do not so according to thy words, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Mizpah is the same place, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where Jacob and Laban had made their famous promise uh, back and forth to each other. And Mizpah literally means to watch. The Lord will watch over this covenant. So they're making a deal with each other, a covenant before the Lord. Okay, we mention this, we deal with this with kids all the time. You make a promise, you you keep it. You make a promise before God, He makes you keep it. He does. That's just who He is, because God keeps His promises. And by the way, thank God that He does. He loves us in spite of who we are. He's long suffering. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth. That's a promise. We can hang on to that. No matter how bad we screw up, his mercy is still there and his mercies are new every morning. Isn't that amazing? So when you make a promise, you're supposed to keep it. You make a promise before God, he's going to make you keep it. And that's exactly what the people do here. We're going to move forward. Look at verse 12. And Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon saying, what hast thou to do with me? That thou art come against me to fight in my land, and the kings uh, of children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon even unto Jabbak and unto Jordan, and therefore now therefore restore, restore those lands again peaceably. So Jephthah just sends a messenger across the river over to Gilead and says, Hey, king, why exactly are you attacking us? Like, what's the point in this? Is there a reason? Yeah, you stole our land. The problem is, at this point, this is over three centuries old. He's actually trying to recoup land that has been gone for over 300 years. And it was won rightfully in battle. And we're not going to reread it, but verses 14 through 28, Jephthah actually goes back and recounts Israel's history as to how they acquired these lands in the first place. And they won them rightfully so. Look throughout all of human history any type of battle or war happens, who gets all the stuff? The winner does. The winner takes the spoils. Jephthah actually explains in detail through verses 14 through 28, all the reasons why Israel has direct and rightful claim to the land because they won it. Is that correct or not? Yes. Yes, it is. The answer is very short. We can actually go back through uh, uh, Exodus, parts of Leviticus, and Deuteronomy and actually break down all those different battles, where those took place, and yes, Israel had full right to those because they won, and that's how that works. We, We okay? We good? Okay. You do realize part of the reason we're here today is we won a war. And then 20 years later, we won another one, the War of 1812, and followed that up with another victory. And England, stay out. This is ours now. That's why we're here. You, you, you good? Okay. So that's what Israel's saying. My favorite portion of this, though, is verse 24. Look at verse 24. Wilt thou not possess that which Chemosh, thy God, giveth thee to possess? So he actually calls them out. So we have this land because God gave it to us. He helped us win these victories and he constantly gives God the credit. By the way, we should be doing the same. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh. Yeah, it's not from us. We're not that good. God's the one laying all the pieces in place. We just happen to pick it up and like, look, I won. No, God's like, I put that there, dude. It's like an Easter egg hunt. Except we're too dumb to know what the Easter eggs look like. God has to like put them right in front of our face to find where they are in the first place. He's straight up asking, we got all this stuff from God and I can prove it. And he backs it up over and over again. Verse 24, wilt thou not possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess. Do you ask your God why you don't have it anymore? This is a great call out right here. If your God's so good, why can't he give it back to you? Why? Because he's a statue. And statues don't do anything. Plain and simple. And at this point, this is kind of where we caught up, and this is we're, we're kind of back to being caught up here. Look at verse 28, and we'll move forward. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon, hearken not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent him. Unfortunately, what Jephthah had done here was given a rightful claim to all of this land, and the king of Ammon decided to completely ignore it. So he's going to go in with his invasion and move forward. Look at verse 29. And this, this is important. The beginning of verse 29, if you want to mark this, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. This is one of the first times we're we're seeing that phrase here in the book of uh, Judges. And it becomes a repeat phrase throughout the end of the book of Judges. Does anybody know which of the judges the spirit of the Lord came upon more frequently than any other? That'd be Samson. One of the things that you and I have that is... Possibly one of the greatest blessings that God chose to give Christians is the Holy Spirit lives inside us once we're saved. He's literally with us everywhere we go. The Israelites did not have that. The Spirit of the Lord would kind of come down and he'd go back and he'd come down and he'd go back and he'd come. And sometimes it was on a person. Sometimes it was on a whole group. If you pay attention through the era of Moses, the spirit was basically in a cloud of fire and a cloud by day. And it was was the symbolic, and that was actually the Lord himself, the spirit of the Lord in a symbolic form. So all of the children of Israel could look and see the Lord is literally leading us. By the way, wouldn't that be much easier if you need God's direction? He just like lights up this beacon. It's the bat symbol. And you're like, oh, God says, go there. Those people complained up a storm, but you and I'd be like, Please sign me up for that. That sounds great. Free food and you tell us exactly what to do. I'm game. It's like Canada. I don't know, okay? Uh, But here, the spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah. And again, this is one of the first times we see this happening with a judge. And he passed over Gilead. We're still in verse 29. And Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. So he's actually kind of traversing the entire area This is Gilead, Manasseh, and then goes into Mizpah. Why do you think he made this kind of long roundabout journey to get to where the children of Ammon were? There's actually a pretty simple, fairly logical reason. Why would he kind of make a little bit of a roundabout journey to get to where the enemy's at? Somebody. Say that again? Flanking? Flanking? No, not necessarily, because he's actually, he faces them head on, unfortunately. It's a good thought though. Joshua was like the king of flanking. He needed more people in his army. He's just recruiting more people. And now he's got the spirit of the Lord. You ever met somebody that's just got that, that charisma, that, that, that spirit about them and you're just like, okay, whatever this person wants to do, let's do it. I don't care what it is. And they're, they're actually selling you condos in the Everglades, but you don't even care anymore. You're just like, yeah, let's do this. Hey, we just got done with camp and there's always that one kind of team leader that just, that they're, they're in it to win it whether you die or not, okay? And they're just, they, you wanna do what they say. You wanna follow. You want, why? Because they got that energy. He's got the spirit of the Lord on him. You and I know, by the way, when somebody's got the spirit of the Lord on them, the guy who normally sits in that seat has the spirit of the Lord on him. And for 25 years, we've seen God do amazing things at this church over and over and over and over again. Jephthah's just kind of, he's taken a little bit of a roundabout here because he's getting more people. Here's the intriguing part about this. From this point forward, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, he's only moving forward. When we let the Spirit lead in our lives, we move forward. The moments where we try to take back over... That's when we go backwards. The spirit of the Lord will never lead you to a place of lower standards, lower conviction, lower anything, because that's not how that works. He's not trying to bring you down. He's trying to bring you up to God's level. You do realize that Enoch walked with God to a point where God was like, you can walk right into heaven. That's what the spirit of the Lord is trying to do. You and I will never be perfect until we get to heaven. We won't. But we should strive to live like Enoch, letting the spirit lead us to a point where we actually just progress. Could you imagine waking up one day and God's just like, you've been so good and done so much right. I'm just gonna take you to heaven and you're not even gonna have to die for it. You're just gonna walk right into heaven. That's, That's where Enoch was. Jephthah gets the spirit of the Lord and from this point forward, just moves forward. Constantly moving forward. It's an intriguing thought. Look at verse 30. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord. Many refer to this particular verse as Jephthah's mistake. I don't think it was. Because you th- realize the verse before, he's got the Spirit of the Lord on him. Spirit of the Lord, God will never lead you into a place you shouldn't be. Spirit of the Lord will never lead you into, the, into a bar and tell you to have a couple drinks. Why? Read the Bible. Alcohol's a big no-no, and it doesn't take a lot of effort to figure that one out, hey. The Spirit of the Lord will probably never lead you into a tattoo parlor to get, you know, Jesus saves on your forehead. Why? Because that's stupid. Straight up, Jesus saves or not in your forehead—that's just stupid, okay. But Jephthah makes a vow here that we do have to give him a little bit of, little pushback, if you will. It was a little open-ended, a little open-ended. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah makes a vow here. Again, the way I phrased it was on purpose, a little open-ended. Whatever cometh forth of the doors of my house. We're going to find out in a a later verse. There were only two people living in Jephthah's house at the time. He's not there. Are we okay with that? He's at war. He can't be at home too. He's not. We we haven't figured that part out yet. If we nail down the two places at one time, every mom in the world will just breathe a sigh of relief. Okay. We haven't nailed that down yet. So there's only two people in Jephthah's house. His wife and we find out his daughter, his only child. But look at how that's phrased, that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house. That's kind of specific. He's coming home. Think about your own house. You come home, what's usually the first thing that greets you? Some people would be a dog. In my house, it'd be a dog or, or a snake, maybe. I'm not sure, not a snake. They're locked up. Chill out. Okay? Some of you are like, I'm never going to their house again. It'd be a dog. So maybe he was thinking it's a dog. Maybe he's one of those weird people that had a pet pig. Or, you know, you ever seen those people? We had a family in our church in Pennsylvania that had a potbelly pig that lived in their house. It was toilet trained. Like, it used the toilet. I did not use the bathroom in their house. Just throwing that out there because that's creepy, okay? It could have been maybe he had pet ferrets. I I don't know. Maybe he was expecting their their entire flock of chickens to come out of the door when he came home. Maybe he had a guard turkey. You can actually train turkeys to be guard animals. I don't know if you know that, and it's legal in this state. Weird pet, but go for it, okay? I don't know what he was expecting. Maybe cows just roamed in and out of his home. Maybe the sheep did. I don't know what he was expecting, but the phrasing here that's where we gotta give Jephthah a little bit of pushback is like, dude. You didn't think this vow through very well. And we all know the account of Jephthah. We know what's coming, but we're going to get there in a minute. Look at verse 32. And Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them. Key phrase being right at the end of verse 32. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. What was Jephthah's vow? What was his request of God? Look back at verse 30. If thou wilt without fail, deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands. And look at what he does, God does in verse 32 again. The Lord delivered them into his hands. doesn't say that Jephthah did this. The Lord did this. You know, if we'll let the spirit lead, like what happened with Jephthah in verse 29, God will fight our battles for us. Don't you get tired of fighting? Whatever your battle may be, every one of us has one or two, or they're on all fronts at one time. But don't you get tired of fighting? You just genuinely, and, and Be honest, we're human, we get tired. Why don't we let God take care of those? I don't know if you know this. This is very deep right here. God's bigger than us. God's also stronger than us. Bible says he's got the entire universe in the span of his hand. If he can hold all of that up, the weight of the universe is literally listed currently at infinite tons. Infinite doesn't end and he's holding that in one hand. He's bigger than us. He's stronger than us. He's also richer than us. Cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine, because he created all of it. Why don't we let the spirit lead and let God fight our battles? He can win if we'll let him. And that's exactly what Jephthah did. And he smote them from a roar, even till thou come to Mineth, even 20 cities and unto the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. I love that phrase. That means a lot of people dead. Very great slaughter. 20 cities. This is actually a pretty huge accomplishment. This is a massive ongoing battle here. Thus, the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. They win. God has a spirit-filled judge. He's got spirit-filled leadership. And again, according to what the Bible says there in verse 32, the Lord Delivered them into his hands. God did all the work, God set everything in place. He just needed some willing vessels. That's what the whole book of Judges boils down to is these people were willing to be used by God whenever he needed. Look at verse 34. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. He's finally home. He's finally home. We again, the Bible says in process of time. None of us can guess how long he was gone, but Jephthah is finally actually home here. And behold, His daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And again, going back to his vow, again, look at verse 32. Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me. Think about this. If we know what we know from verse 34, because we have the whole of scripture and we can read ahead, which I know a bunch of you did because you didn't look up after we read verse 30. He's got an only daughter, only child he's got, but he still makes a vow to God, I'm going to sacrifice whatever comes from my doors first. Why didn't she run through his head? You ever thought about that for a split second? Why didn't she run through his head? He just won the biggest battle of their generation. Wouldn't she be wanting to celebrate him? Dad's home. When I get home, the dog barks and there are two little people nine and under that usually yell or scream something. Why? Because dad's home. It could have been, I walked out to check the mail and now I'm back in and they're still making noise. Anybody ever have that happen to you? uh, Our first dog, Sydney, she was a rescue we got from the animal shelter in Gaylord, Michigan. She would pee on the floor every time my sister Sarah came over. And we started to figure out a trend that it was Sarah somehow was the trigger of this. So we'd take Sydney out. She'd use the bathroom. We'd wait on the linoleum on purpose for when Sarah came in, cause it didn't matter. It was like she was saving some of that up for when Sarah got there. Sarah could go back out to the car to grab something, be back in two minutes later and she'd get so excited she'd do it again. It was like this repeat problem, right? You have to think for a split second as a dad, as just a human being, why didn't Jephthah think that his daughter would be the first person to meet him? What if it had been his wife? Why didn't those two people run through his head? Again, I can't answer these questions. I'm not even going to attempt to. But as a basic human being, wouldn't they have run through your mind at least once? He makes this vow, I'm going to sacrifice and look at what the Bible says. Go back again to verse 31. The end of the verse, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's a specific thing here. Why didn't he think about his wife or his daughter? I don't know if you read the Bible the way I do, but that's literally the first thing I think of when I read that. It's just kind of odd. And it came to pass, look at verse 35, when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. Just get a picture in your brain here for a second. This guy, he's been an outcast. He's been thrown out of his family. We don't know how long he was in Tob with his band of men, but he just won the greatest victory of his generation. Could you imagine the high he's on? Just, the testosterone, the adrenaline, everything's just flowing. He's probably still got blood, guts, mud, and sweat running down his body. And he's coming home and instantly that's gone. Because his daughter comes out the door and look at how she met him, came out to meet him. This is verse 34 with timbrels and with dances. She's celebrating dad. She's so excited. Dad's home, dad won. And as excited as she is, as much energy as she has, it demolishes his. Could you imagine that level of roller coaster? in a matter of moments? Because he knows what he has to do. And look at what, this, this goes back to, again, what God called Jephthah at the beginning of the chapter. What did he call him? What was God's nickname for him? He was a mighty man of valor. He's proving that here at the end of verse 35. I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. How many of us have made a decision, whether it's at an altar, at our seat, at a conference, at a camp and we've gone back on God, I promise I'm not going to do fill in the blank anymore. And we've gone back on that. If we were a man or a woman of valor, we would be quoting this right here. I've opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. If you would, I don't know if you're like me, underline that phrase, that right there, that should sum up the basics of the Christian life for you and I. God's done an, an immense amount for us. The song says that if the skies were filled with scrolls, parchment, we, we, couldn't, we could never fill up all the things that God's done for us. But he's only asked actually a small number of things of us in return. One of those is obedience. The most basic of all things obedience. I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. Where are you at on that? God's asked you, called you, told you to do something. Are you going to hold to that? Even when it gets difficult, even when it's hard, dad's not here. So let me give you a gym story. I'm four weeks from next competition. Dad and I are both competing again on August 5th. Well, I have this lovely tendency to to overdo it. I don't know if you know that about me. Um, If you've ever gone to the gym or worked out, they do a lot of things on what's called an RPE scale, rate of perceived exertion. How did this make you feel? And every day could be different. If you only got two hours of sleep and you go try to lift something really heavy, you're going to have a really bad day. And everything's going to seem like it's a 10 on that scale. You're just, you're tired, you're worn out. If you slept like a rock the night before and you've done nothing all day and you're just full of energy and caffeine, everything may seem like a two or three, and it's the same numbers you lifted on the day before. Are we okay, that concept? Well, my trainer, Cyrus, will put all these things in RPE7, which should give you the idea that if I lift this and I say I do it for five reps, I should be able to do two or three more if I work extra hard. Because if it's an RPE7 and there's a 10 on the scale, I should have a little left in the tank, are we okay? I am not really good at that. So a couple weeks ago, he said, he gave me some squats, I want you to go for three, and he just put a number, a starting number, and then put a plus next to it. Well, plus means go up. I was feeling good, so I went up. I went up higher than I should have. I went up higher than I've ever gone before. I decided to set a new one rep max, except I did it for three. I paid for that for a week and a half, because I'm stupid. So what did Cyrus do? He asked me straight up, Tim, you need to follow my instructions to a T. We're a month away. You can't hurt yourself before competition. Follow my instructions. I said, okay. Yesterday was one of the most boring lifts I've ever done in my life because I followed the instructions. It was just do this. Okay. I can do heavier. I know, but don't do it. But I can do heavier. I know you can, but don't. Yes, sir. I opened my mouth and I cannot go back. I followed the instructions. You know, I feel really good today, by the way, because I wasn't stupid yesterday. That should be how we treat our walk with God. I opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. God's asked us to do some basic things. Go to church. By the way, pastors mentioned this before. Did you know there's not a single verse in the Bible that says to read your Bible every day? It does tell you to meditate on it day and night though. How else do you meditate on it if you don't know what it says? So you gotta read it in order to meditate on it. What? I know, it's very difficult to figure that out. God's asked us to obey. The very basics of the Christian life is do what God says. And if you actually pay attention, yes, you can go through and add up the some 600, some odd commandments that a person is supposed to follow throughout the Bible. You ever thought about how easy most of them are? Thou shalt not kill. I know we've all thought about it, but realistically, none of us are going to follow through on that. Pride, though. Lying. Some of those get a little bit more difficult, and God said, don't do it. So what are you going to do? Jephthah made a vow here, and I'm going to let Pastor cover the details on it next Sunday. But this vow, he keeps. Read through the end of Judges chapter 11. It's one of the most hard-to-stomach chapters in all of the Bible. Because especially those of us as a parent, this would tear us apart. And let me end with this one statement. We have a bunch of teenagers with us today. Moms and dads, our decisions directly affect our kids. Jephthah made a decision somewhat hastily, maybe a little too open-ended. He didn't think it through quite as well as maybe he should have. But his decision directly affected his kid forever. All of our decisions affect our kids. Even those of you... Whose kids are out of the house now? Your decisions still affect your kids because you're still mom and dad. No matter how old the rest of us get, you're still mom and dad. And you make a decision, ah, I'm not going to go to church anymore. That's going to mess with us. Open my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. What are you going to do with that? That is one of the most important and I believe one of the most powerful phrases anywhere in your Bible. If you haven't underlined it, please do. Please mark that. Because that, that should affect you in a much deeper level than just reading it and reading about Jephthah. Are you applying this same concept to your own life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything that you do for us. Lord, thank you for this day.